0: Built to sell
1: radio with your host, John Warlow. So what's your number? You know, the amount of money someone would have to pay you today to buy your business. Interesting question. What I'd like you to think about as you listen to this next episode with Chris Jones, because as you'll hear, Chris was put on the spot and asked exactly that question by his acquirer. His answer may surprise you. Chris Jones, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. Listen, you had this company called Pepper Jam. Great name. I'd love to know the story. What, what were you guys selling?
0: <laughs> so it started out, right? So I was a graduate student at Villanova in the late 90s. And if you knew me at that time, I was that guy that was, um, would tell you that the internet was going to change the world, um, the only problem was at the time I wasn't an entrepreneur. I was an investor. I was investing in internet IPOs among other things.
1: Where'd you get the money to do that at the age of whatever, 25?
0: (laughs) Oh man. I had, my original story was completely a bootstrap story where I maxed out credit cards and took whatever uh, access to capital I could find and, you know, turned it into (laughs) hopefully, you know, uh, you know, more than I invested. So, but it was really that, you know, study that I, that I, that I had in the late nineties around the internet and just sort of telling everyone that would listen about how I thought it was going to change the game. Well, I got, I got a phone call from my brother, Rick, and he had pitched me on taking our grandmother's gourmet food called Mississippi mud and, uh, selling it on the internet. Long story short, we renamed, uh, the Mississippi, Mud. well, long story short, I said, that sounds pretty cool. Let's do that. We renamed Mississippi Mud uh, to Pepper Jam by simply typing the ingredients into what then was probably Alta Vista. Um, and uh, what came out is this product called Pepper Jelly, and we didn't want to be like pepper jelly, so we called ourselves Pepper Jam. Well, I went online, John. Uh, I self-studied around you know how to build a business online. I had um, quickly learned uh, that I needed to thoroughly understand, marketing strategies like search engine optimization and pay-per-click marketing and affiliate marketing. And through that whole process of self-education, we launched this gourmet food business. And within short order, I had developed some skills around digital marketing, so online marketing. And um, others had, had started to ask me if I would assist them in launching an affiliate program and helping them set their business up for success. Therein, uh, sort of incubated, if you will, uh, the digital marketing company called Pepper Jam. So my brother and I separated the two companies. He went off and managed the gourmet food business that was called Grandma Jones's Originals Pepper Jam, two words. I, I maintain the domain pepperjam.com. And uh, over the next five years, I built one of the leading uh, digital marketing and affiliate businesses in the United States.
1: I love this. So, you know, a lot of guys will come to me and and say, hey, could you look at my business plan? I'm thinking of getting the business of doing, you know, fill-in-the-blank company. And I always sort of (laughs) smile – at it because they've spent hours and hours and decades in some cases on their business plan, and I'm like, get into the business and start selling something because yeah. you're going to change so many times what it is you're selling, <laughs> and you you get the the prize for changing the you know the biggest the biggest, <laughs> the biggest uh, pivot if you allow me to use that yeah. overused expression selling pepper jelly into a digital marketing agency. That's awesome. Thank you. Yes. So you go on from at ninety nine, and I understand there was a bit of an inflection point at in two thousand three um, when Michael joined the, the group. Maybe talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So those first couple of years, really from early two thousand through two thousand three, um, you know, I had sort of I was in the process of perfecting this model of building websites. Um, I had, as I had already alluded to, I had developed strategies around. Driving traffic, and the really the the method that I put together was number one, find something that works. Uh, two, replicate it, and then three, scale it. So this real simple formula that I put together, which by the way, when I say find something that works, I was trying to find niches within websites, so gourmet foods, cookware, um, shoes you know, whatever it might be that I could arbitrage, that I could generate traffic to those websites and then arbitrage it through affiliate marketing. So what
1: do you mean arbitrage? I don't understand that.
0: Arbitrage meaning, you know, um, let's say acquiring traffic at a dollar and then selling it at a dollar 50, right? So I would make 50 cents for every, whatever, every click that I could get. Uh, Through my website, and and so during those first couple years, I had built. um, Let me say, let me put it this way. I'll kind of conclude by 2003. uh, While I was in law school, during those years, by the way, so I was doing this. I was doing it full time, but I was also going to law school full time. I had um, really gone from rags to riches. I mean, I started out with uh, you know no money, and by 2003, I had about two and a half million dollars of cash. I took that money. I moved back to Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and um, after law school, and uh, I sat down with my best friend, Michael Jones. He was a practicing attorney, and I said, "Hey, Mike, you know, I want to take this business to the next level. I have some startup cash, a significant amount of startup cash, and I want to take what I've learned about generating website traffic and helping people make money online, and I want to build." I'm going to be candid with you, John. Here's what I said to him. I said, "Mike, I want to build the leading internet marketing company in the country, and then I want to I want to sell it for millions of dollars to like a publicly traded company, a strategic acquirer." And so, before I ever hired my first employee from an M and A and from a sort of buying and selling perspective, I in, I had intended to build a world class company that could eventually get acquired. By a strategic buyer, and 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 I do remember saying to Mike in 2003 that you know I'd love to sell it to a publicly traded company. Now I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna talk more about it, but never did I think you know just uh, five six years later that I would I would uh, eventually sell it to a publicly traded company um, named eBay. But we we, we could uh, we could flesh that out. So Mike,
1: well, before we do, I want to ask you a kind of a personal question. What, sure. what is it?
0: about the money that was so
1: important to you?
0: You know, I don't, I can't really identify with that question. It, it really, it really wasn't. I think money is like a scorecard. It's part of the game. Uh, for me, it's never been about the money. It's, it's, it's been more about, you know, trying to build things that um, are, are really good, that right, that solve problems or that really help people do things. And in the case of Pepper Jam, you know, I had founded that business. You know, having built my own business around the same strategies that I was offering to others to help accelerate their business. So for me, it was about you know self actualization and and being the best company that we could be and building the best brand that we could build. And in my case as the CEO and the founder was being the best possible leader, you know, that, that I could be. And, and I guess to some degree, uh, the money was uh, part of like, you know, how are we doing? But, um, me, me wanting to found a company and sell it, um, was more about the challenge and the, and just the belief that I could do it, that I, I was capable of doing it. Um, I will, I will say since you asked that question, um, when you look back at the last say 20, 25 years of my career, there is one unifying, um, sort of thing that, that defines me and it's not entrepreneurship. It's a dedication to personal and professional development. a teenager, started listening to Tony Robbins CDs and um, really realized through that process of going through personal power that um, as an individual, we have this untapped, unlimited potential to do and accomplish whatever it is that we want to accomplish. And I, we, the purpose of this interview is not to dive into all those things. It's to really talk about buying and selling businesses, but that idea of buying and selling businesses is one of probably 20 or 30 examples where I have just tried to leverage my unlimited potential to do things that most people don't do. Uh, Another quick example is I never, as a teenager, I thought, you know, Hey, if I can make a difference in this world, one way I could do that is by writing a book. Who would have thought that I've I've published three books and have sold over 100,000 copies? But that – you know, so you could do whatever it is that you set your mind to as long as you get really clear on what it is that you want. And then you really hold yourself accountable to that process of what it's going to take. It's not easy. It's not just a matter of saying I want to build and sell your business. It's a matter of really thinking through and setting yourself up uh, you know, for success so there's let's, failures so let's, along the way.
1: Let's dig into some of that and go back to our story on Pepper Jam here. So let's get into some of those details. So 2003, you, you sat down with Michael. You said, look, I got a couple million bucks in startup capital. Mm-hmm. Um, it, where does the conversation go from there? Did you join forces? Did you become partners? How, how did that work?
0: Yeah. So he and I sat over lunch. Um, remember this guy, he's in his, in his early twenties, um, he had a child when he was in his teens, when he was at Villanova. Um, so he's an attorney. You know, I don't know. Let's say making fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars a year at that time. And I was—he was my best friend. So I was simply telling him what I was about to do. I promise you. And Mike will tell you. I, I didn't offer him a job. I mean, it wasn't like that. i, I did say to him. That Mike, I want to hire the best and brightest people that we could that I could find using that whole sort of uh, Warren Buffett, you know, hire smart people and get out of their way idea. Uh, but I, I did not say to Mike, "Hey, come on as my co-founder," you know, "Hey, join the team." This is a true story. Couple days later, Mike calls me um, and tells me that he wrote a letter and he's prepared to resign from the law firm and join me. So, so he did that. And I was like, floored. I was like, this is incredible. This is great. Um, and so it was just Mike Jones and myself. Um, you know, we, we, our first office was this 275 square square foot office. We're kind of looking at each other for the first two weeks. (laughs) And then how did you guys
1: divide up the equity? I mean, you were bringing a lot of cash to the table. Did you go 50, 50 or did you, how did you figure that out?
0: No, we didn't. You know, he was a minority owner, but, you know, he's been, uh, he, he, he was taken care of and he, and he was, you know, clearly became a millionaire when we sold the company. Got it. So then you and Mike started off sort of in
1: a very small office and mm-hmm. you built this company ultimately up uh, to a point where by 2009, you had sort of thousands of customers in this affiliate um, offering that you had. Is that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, we went from, you know, really starting to, uh, you know, help small businesses, if you will, to then sort of graduating to larger businesses. And, and then by, you know, 06, 07, 08, um, you know, we were, we were working with some of the largest brands in the world. And, you know, the, the turning point really was, you know, we were a world-class, digital marketing agencies. So we offered search engine optimization and uh, pay-per-click marketing and, and started to get involved in the early at that time, the early days of social uh, media marketing. Uh, but we, we I, I had felt from the beginning that if we're going to eventually sell this company, we're going to need technology. So um, what I was doing was, you know, we were generating a lot of positive cash flow. Um, and I would use a significant portion of that cash flow to invest in a division of our company that was sort of um, uh, stealth, if you will, where they were building out, you know, technology. So I had about a dozen or so full-time developers and IT people who were uh, who were really tasked with building technology for us, and so we had worked very closely in the affiliate marketing space, which is about a two three billion dollar industry here in the U S. And there were all, there were three big players: a company called Commission Junction, which was owned by publicly traded ValueClick; company called uh, LinkShare, which was owned by publicly traded uh, Rakuten; and a small little company called Performix, which was. Gu- uh, eaten up by a a, a huge company called Google. So they were our three competitors, but guess what? They were big and bloated. And we felt like we were close enough to the industry to, you know, build an affiliate network, basically an affiliate technology that addressed some of those problems. And, 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 And therein was really our claim to fame, which was this affiliate network. We launched it on January 13th of 2008 by mid-year, there were reports that we were quickly becoming one of the top five affiliate networks in the country. I mean, we were, we were, we were, we were closing 100 to 200 new advertisers on the platform a month.
1: Chris, for, for people who don't know, maybe you could, in a really layman explanation, explain what affiliate networks are.
0: Yeah, you know, it's really simple. So you own a website and you're looking to monetize that website, right? So you're looking to make money from the website. Um, Affiliate marketing is a technology that allows you to partner with businesses that will pay you a percentage of a referral or of a sale when you post a banner or a link or a video or whatever it might be on your website um, and someone clicks through to that and then uh, purchases. You either get a referral fee or a commission. Um, and we built technology that provided the tracking, the reporting, the sort of, you know, um, solution for you to log in and see how you're doing. Um, so we we built that solution. And like I said, we built it uh, for the purpose of sort of taking that industry to the next level by addressing some of the problems that existed. And, and might I say that back in the late 90s, as I told the story earlier in early 2000s, when I said find something that works, um, replicate it and scale it, that's what I was doing with websites. I was building websites and I was saying, how can I make money from these websites? And affiliate marketing, you know, was was a primary uh, revenue vehicle that I used during my law school years to to make all that money that I referred to. So. Um,
1: So you're kind of running two businesses in parallel. You're running a professional marketing services business where you're working with other brands and helping them, you know, buy keywords and optimize their websites. And then kind of as a skunkworks project, you're building this second business with, I would imagine, some very different operating metrics, this affiliate Mm -hmm. network.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we uh, were very bold to launch this piece of technology, because we were relying on those other platforms uh, as strategic partners. So uh, suffice it to say, they weren't happy with us. When I remember, I, I referred to the my tech team as in stealth. In other words, people didn't know they existed. And you know, when we launched our technology on January thirteenth, two thousand eight, uh, that industry, the affiliate industry you know really was like wow what just happened you know nobody saw this coming and and to be completely candid you know we had a great team of developers that built this it was done in house we knew how to do it and as i said within the first 6 months you know we were you know publicly being compared to the big ones that i mentioned earlier Later that year was the first of – it was actually the second call that I got from a company based out of uh, – right outside of Philadelphia called GSI Commerce. Uh, at the time, they were uh, about a two and a half billion dollar uh, company traded on the NASDAQ. They worked with hundreds of the leading um, e-commerce companies. So if you looked at the internet retailer top 500, nobody managed more of the e-commerce solutions than, than GSI Commerce. And we knew of these guys. The CEO, Michael Rubin, had reached out to me back in 2007 before we even launched our technology um, and you know, just inquired about what we were doing. He said he, he just saw us around a lot and, and whatnot. But fast forward there to late 2008, Uh, We get a call um, from GSI saying, you know, we're really impressed with what you're doing. So therein was really the beginning of some strategic acquisition discussions uh, that lasted um, for for several months and then culminated in in, in an acquisition in late 2009.
1: Let's talk about that. So GSI is obviously a big player in your space, a strategic uh, acquirer. Um When they approached you uh, the second time, it was clearly for the purposes of an acquisition discussion. is that right uh
0: it was it was you know the interesting thing, and this is the advice I give to young entrepreneurs is strategic partnership is sort of pseudo code for you know let's uh let's let's walk before we dance let's dance before we run um so the the two words early in the relationship kind of mean the same thing, but you know, it, what type of strategy exists? So, you know, they invited us out there to begin the discussion, overlapping our, our, our two services and really thinking about, you know, uh, w- you know what what would uh, Pepper Jam bring to the table? Um, and in the case of GSI Commerce, you know, at that time, I think they were doing I don't know, 100, 200 million dollars. Couldn't even it could have even been more? I, I don't recall in um, affiliate sales for the e-commerce companies that they managed, and they weren't using us. They were using a competing platform called LinkShare. So they were they were really interested in getting into this affiliate technology game. And here's this company Pepper Jam, who had just launched their platform, you know, uh, less than a year before, but really went onto the scene with a ton of excitement and a ton of support and and momentum and leverage. And so once we started to have the initial discussions, John, about, you know, what value Pepper Jam would bring to the table for a JSI commerce, you know, uh, it became quickly, quickly and readily uh, apparent that for both sides, uh, there were, strategically, it, it just made a lot of sense. And did
1: and who made the first move? I mean, did they provide you with an offer? Did, did the CEO say, Hey, you know, Chris, what's, what's it going to take to buy your business?
0: Oh man. I don't know if you read this article. I'm guessing that you didn't, but, um, so this is one of the great, I, I think one of the, one of the, Great stories of this whole transaction. So I had gotten to know the CEO Michael Rubin. Um, both Mike and I, and, and several members of our senior team, had, had been going back and forth between GSI and Pepper Jam. But I get a call from uh, uh, Michael, and he says he wants me to come down to GSI Commerce, but just to come by myself. You know, he said, you know, don't bring Mike. You know, don't bring anybody else. And this this story that I'm telling you actually, uh, I had later. Uh, wrote an article for Inc. Magazine and it's published in there. So anybody who's listening to this could just type in, you know, Chris Jones, Michael Rubin, and, and you could read the whole article. But so, um, I was like, okay, cool. You know, maybe he just wants to chum with me, you know, maybe we're going to go out for a nice lunch, maybe get a glass of wine, get a dinner. And I drove down there and, um, I kept to GSI and, uh, they're like, uh, you know, you know, Mr. Rubin is, is in the conference room waiting for you. So I get there It's Michael. Uh, On his other side is his CMO, general counsel. Um, On the other side is uh, Michael Kahn, his CFO, and there may have been one or two other people in the room. And then here I am on the other side. And again, I had already established a rapport with him at this point, but I will be honest. He he point blank said to me, um, what's your number? And that was it. And then just silence. What's your number? And in the back of my head, I'm thinking to myself, well, geez, I think this is sort of, you know, MA 101. You don't give them a number. I mean, you give them a number, then you, you know what the what the what the high point is, right? And um, but at the same time, the strategic fit between these two companies was so awesome. And we and, and he knew it, and we knew it, that um, here's what I did. I actually, in my mind, because any you know, uh, you know a- anyone who's at this stage of, of sort of an M and A is already thinking about what what the price is. So I basically took that high price, and then I took what is basically the puke number, which is like anything below that, and I'm feeling like this is a fire sale. And I literally went with what would be sort of in the middle of those two numbers, and I blurted it out. There was some silence, and he looked at me, and he said, "I think we're going to get a deal done." And, you know, that was early 2009 when that happened. And, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the transaction went public on September 1st of, of 2009. So, so we got the deal done. And, um, of course, I, I don't necessarily – I would recommend to those listeners that are out there to be very careful, you know, when, you know, just blurting out a price like that. You know, I – You know, I didn't mention this, but I, you know, during my law school years and whatnot, I I mean, I do have some background in finance. And the whole idea of mergers and acquisitions is something that I've studied very closely. So at that point, I saw that as an opportunity potentially of building some trust with the buyer. and, And trust, I think, is what I built by giving him a number and then sticking with it. You know, and but I would I would suggest you know to others you know be be careful. I, I, I think that a better strategy might be to stay coy, and or make sure that you have a um, an M and banker advisor in the room who could who could shield you from having to answer that question. In my case, I, I didn't. Um, but when I give this presentation, I, I give this uh, this thing I call the M and checklist which I go through about 16 different f- lessons that I learned from having bought and sold businesses. And, um, you know, I, I would say that having a banker, having a good representative when you're, when you're negotiating the sale of your business is a really, really great idea. In fact, uh, I would be, you know, moving forward in some of the, the companies I've bought and sold, you know, I always make sure uh, that I have some, you know, advisors very close to me.
1: Did you feel kind of ambushed by Ruben when he brought in the other people?
0: Ask that you know I, I just I just told this story last week in New Orleans. Um, you know I, I look back on that on that moment in fondness. Michael is a friend. Uh, I had, Michael is a multi multi billionaire. This guy has is is extraordinary. Uh, he's a tough he's a tough cookie. You know but there's a reason you know why he's successful. My guess is that you know if. If, if a book is written about him, you know, uh, at some point in the future, you know, it, it's going to take a real critical look at him. But I think, you know, his his success speaks for itself. So did I feel ambushed? Um, I'm a very confident individual uh, because I focus so much on personal and professional development and becoming the best possible me that I could become. So, you know, I didn't crap my pants. I didn't pee my pants. And I gave him a number that we eventually got to. And you know what? Uh, I have no regrets. I look back on it with incredible fondness. And the fit as well, the strategic fit speaks for itself. Uh, I would say about 90 plus percent of my original team that I built before I sold is still in place six years later. My partner, who you mentioned earlier, Mike Jones, um, is now the CEO, uh, but not just the CEO of Pepper Jam, which we didn't get to I sold the GSI Commerce, and within about a year, we were acquired by eBay. And then the affiliate network that I founded had become the eBay Enterprise Affiliate Network, and is, it is now considered the number two affiliate network in the world, um, next to Commission Junction. So at least publicly, you know, I, I don't, you know. And so that little company uh, was able to, you know, accelerate its growth and play at a level. Um, that that Mike and I dreamed about, you know, and you know we look we look at it and it's extraordinary. So um, that original team's in place. So to answer your question, no, you know, listen, I, I mean, business is, business is tough. You know, you've got to have a, a, a spine. And what I say to young entrepreneurs is that you know most small businesses fail, but if you look at the five percent or so that after ten years succeed. Those ones that succeed are the ones that learn the lessons about why businesses succeed and why they fail. So if you build up the, your skill set around you know, understanding the difference, for instance, between financial reporting and financial analysis, you know, understanding just valuation, understanding how to you know, um, uh, manage you know, your, your growth and to build a great sales team and all of those fun things – I think that you go into a meeting like that, and even though I didn't have representation, I was as prepared as I could be, and I have no regrets about it. And Michael Rubin continues to be a friend and a supporter. He supports a number of my portfolio companies now.
1: Chris, one of the things that, that we've seen, again, from a lot of our other uh, case studies in, in, on Belt and Seto Radio is that there is a, uh, you know, there's, there's an initial offer that, that the entrepreneur and the buyer agree to in a letter of intent. That's sort of a uh, the first step. And then there's a due diligence period, a uh, few months. And usually the number that's accepted in the first meeting is uh, it doesn't necessarily look the same as the number that actually transacts at the share purchase agreement stage. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, things come up in due diligence and and the number kind of shrinks a bit. In your case, you blurted out the number at the ambush meeting or whatever we're going to call it.
0: (laughs) And uh, the opportunity meeting, the opportunity (laughs) meeting, Um, build trust, the trust building meeting. And then in,
1: September, 2009, you closed. So how close were the numbers between the, the you know, the, the, the opportunity meeting and the ultimate, uh, close ironically,
0: ironically, they were almost identical. Isn't that ironically, they were almost identical. I mean, there were opportunities for us to get that number higher. Um, if, if you think about September of 2009, there were not a lot of transactions taking place. That's an statement uh, because <laughs> it happened in 2008. Um, our number was not significantly uh, higher or lower. It was right around what I had uh, uh, I had suggested I would do the deal at. And when the deal got done, um, you know, we were we were very very happy about it. And you know, the integration process, um, you know, the, the the joining of the teams and whatnot went went very very well. And um, you know, I, I don't have. It was a very positive experience. Um, challenging, yes. I mean, listen. Uh, I, I'm I'm optimistic and I'm um, positive, but that doesn't mean that um, you know it wasn't a it wasn't a great challenge, both pre and post. But listen, I, I feel like so grateful for the entrepreneurial experience that I had in being able to build a company from Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and sell it to a publicly traded company that eventually became owned by eBay. And so, you know, the amount of doors that that has opened for me, John, you know, post-transaction, because that happened six years ago, um, have been, I I can't even put it into words. I I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful And I feel like that experience prepared me very, very well, you know, for the investments that I've made. um, And, and, you know, what I've, what I've been able to do, I mean, you know, I founded KBJ Capital as sort of a family fund, if you will, it's, it's only my money that I invest my family's money. And um, I've made about 20 investments. Um, Just in the last 24 months, I've helped those companies raise about $36 million. And, you know, we have, some some real winners, some extraordinary businesses that I've invested in, several of which you know I, I've founded um, that have gone on uh, to become multi multi million dollar businesses. So, oh man, I can't. Everything about that was. I just feel so grateful, and I'm so so fortunate that that I got it done at a at a time in, in our economy where um, there were not a lot of transactions going on, and. Um, but I got it done. Have you ever asked Michael
1: mm-hmm. what if you hadn't given him the number? Have you ever asked him, like, what would you have done with all
0: those people in the room, the CMO, the CFO, the kids? No, I can't. haven't. We'd love to. Not it. only haven't I, but I, that article, like I said, was published in Inc. Magazine. And yeah. um, he has since taken meetings. Like I've chatted with him, um, but he has since taken some meetings with some of my portfolio companies. So my guess is that, you know, he still has a uh, – he still has – a considerable respect for me. Um, so he didn't look at that as me, you know, disclosing too much, but no, I haven't. What do you Uh, think
1: he would say? Like if you had said, look, that's, you know, that's offside, you know, I'll take whatever offer you want to give me, Michael, but I'm not giving you the number. How do you think he would have reacted knowing what you know about him now?
0: Listen, I think the deal would have got done either way. I I mean, the real question is, would I have gotten a, a lower or a higher number? Um, for me, I think it was less about, um, you know, me giving a number that he could chew on. I think, you know, what happens in this buy and sell business is that we could waste each other's time. Right. Um, so if, if the seller goes in and if I had some, you know, completely ridiculous, you know, expectations for, for what the sale price of my business would be, I think it's a fair question that the buyer would say, you know, give me a range or give me an idea. Now, remember, The uniqueness of this transaction was that they're a publicly traded company on NASDAQ. So they have all of these, you know, SEC requirements and regulations, you know, they can't, for instance, um, you know, just be going and acquiring, you know, businesses, you know, for, you know, a hundred times EBITDA or something like that. So, you know, it was, it was a professional environment and, um, you know, if I didn't answer it the way I did, I'm not sure it would have would have impacted it. I think it's it's probably a better story to share than it is the complexity that went into those nine months or so of everything that went on behind the scenes to get the transaction done, including, you know, them sending in a team of of people from their technology team um, to spend days with my tech team and to really see if my tech team was up to par. You know, we, we, we built a platform that was generating, you know, I guess at that time, probably a hundred, two hundred, three hundred million dollars in in transactions. At least we were by the time we were acquired in September. Um and I'll tell you what, you know, the feedback that I got from the from the GSI team on my team was all in the A range, which I'm really, really proud of. So there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes during that whole due diligence process beyond just coming up with a number. There's a lot of tests that could be passed or failed.
1: I want to get I wanna to get to the due diligence uh, piece, yeah. but before we do, it, when when Michael Rubin asked you, you know, what's your number, you'd obviously given it some thought on the plane out there or whatever. What was the valuation methodology you were using to come up with your number?
0: I was looking at – I mean I don't think it was super concrete because I didn't expect him to ask me the question. But at that time, I was really looking at forward revenue probably 18 to 24 months and probably 12 months before. And I was kind of thinking to myself – you know, um, you know, if we use a, a revenue multiple, you know, it's you know, I'd love to get somewhere in that sort of three times ish, um, you know, range. Uh, if if I use an EBITDA multiple, you know, I'm really going to have to focus on the the forward looking because you know, the past we had so much infrastructure investment and whatnot. So, but I said to myself, you know, from an EBITDA standpoint, you know, I'd love to get somewhere in that sort of six to eight. Maybe as high as ten, because you know technology companies at that time, if you look at comparables, you know there were some examples of some some companies going off you know twelve fifteen times EBITDA, um, but most of them were in that sort of cluster of say six to ten percent, so you know I had gone into that meeting not
1: you know, six percent not six to ten percent six. To ten times
0: to EBITDA, times. Yeah, yeah, just six for to ten yep. times. Yep, six to time, six to eight times EBITDA. So, you know, I had gone in there, you know, knowing my numbers, and and the number that I blurted out, I, I knew was was um, was 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 a good number. Yeah. talk talk about diligence we don't have
1: time to go through all of the issues that i'm sure came up in those months yeah. but what was the the most uh, difficult issue to work through what was the most emotionally charged the, the you know the, the thing that almost brought the deal down what was the the single biggest issue you dealt with
0: Oh, that's a great question. I'm not going to suggest this was the the thing that almost brought the deal down by any stretch, but I would say one of the things that was most difficult for me to really think through and come to terms with was uh, the amount of receivable, receivables that we had that were outstanding. You know, I think one thing I learned through the process of my initial process through M and A is that you know you've really, really got to pay attention to your 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 revenue flow. And so in short, what I found was, let's just say the number was $5 million like of receivables that, that, you know, where we were waiting to come in in terms of cash. Um, you know, what percentage of those, or I should say the percentage of those that were post 30 and post 60 was gut wrenching. It wasn't, you know, I had an internal controller. He was reporting numbers to me on a monthly basis and, and, and Brian did a great job. But I think that I kind of was wasn't paying attention enough to aging. And so what happened was, you know, when I was discussing the value of those receivables with GSI, I learned that they wanted to discount them fairly significantly. And I had to really come to terms with that and and think through whether or not, you know their discount was was reasonable. And so you know we hired an internal um, you know collector uh, to try to get as much in as possible because, of course, the value that they were going to give me of money in was a heck of a lot higher than money owed. And so that was a difficult uh, you know, challenge for me. It was kind of a disappointment for me to realize that we had so much uh, uh, money owed to us that, was, that had just aged. I wasn't paying enough attention to it. I could tell you since the GSI transaction um, with all of my businesses, most are either pay up front or um you know i have very strict guidelines for for uh, rendering services to customers or clients who don't pay um but i would say you know that that was one of them um the working capital calculation, by the
1: way, that would impact you know the working capital calculation. How much working capital you had to leave in the business when right. GSI took over the company. So if you're listening to this, and you're wondering why does why do the receivables matter? Uh, the, the receivables are usually part of the working capital calculation, and uh, and in your case, it sounds like it was it could have been a deal breaker.
0: Yeah, it, it really could have been. I imagine if I had responded in a combative way to that issue, versus kind of really trying to think through and, and reach out to some of my advisors and say, "Oh, sh-, you know, what do I do here?" Like, look at, you know, and 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 again, their feedback was collect as much as of it as you can. So we put into process uh, uh, some some you know pretty. Uh, we, we had we had marginal success with collections at that point. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is um you know i mean I, I maybe i shouldn't share that what i was going to say is you know you have to be <clears throat> if there are any legal any outstanding legal issues so when acquirer comes in you know they don't want to buy liabilities right they want to buy assets right and if there are any outstanding liabilities you got to address those during the due diligence process so there was one or two or three things you know that In the in the normal course of business, if I wasn't getting acquired, I would kind of be like, it's normal course of business. Like, who cares if you know a client? And this is just this is not true example, but who cares if a a client you know that paid us ten thousand dollars over the last twelve months you know sent us a letter in the mail saying he demands all ten thousand dollars back here? You know, nobody in their right mind, assuming that we rendered services, is going to send them a check for ten thousand. However, during that whole due diligence process, you do have to disclose, you know, everything about the business. And, um, you know, so there were one or two or three things that came up that really sort of kind of caught me as, oh man, crap, I guess we do have to deal with this. And you know what what ends up happening, John, and and you know this, but for for the listeners, is that, you know, you you end up conceding, you know, on some of these things. So that example I gave, if a client has asked for 10,000, you know, you sure as heck don't want to give them ten thousand, but you may end up giving them six just to get them to sign off on a, you know, a, um, you know, a non-disparagement or whatever it might be. Release um, some, some sort. Yeah, of yeah, release of some kind. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't. You know, I, I don't really remember any major. Um, you know, I think the deal from start to finish. Uh, th- there was never a point where I said this deal isn't going to get done. It felt really good. The strategic fit was there. Um, you know, when the transaction did take place on September 1st of 2009, I'll tell you this, you, you know, what's really signifies it is you, you do the signature pages, but re- really signifies it because that happens first is the money transfer. Right. And that's a weird thing as an entrepreneur, Uh, At least it was for me, almost like a non-believable event. Like I felt like even once you know that initial transfer went through, I just felt like you know maybe maybe I'm going to get a phone call, or maybe somebody from the GSI team is going to pull me over and say you know we were just kidding, or maybe we sent a number that was too big, but um, that didn't happen. And but I'm just it just when I look back on that memory, that's one of the things that struck me. It was sort of. I bear to say it It was sort of an anticlimactic moment when that money was transferred because it was sort of like on the one hand, it it did, you know, commence a new era for Pepper Jam, um, new owner and everything else. But for me, it was sort of like a flood of emotions of of like, you know, you know you know what's next and is this going to go away or whatever and it didn't take long before me before i realized that hey listen when you sell your business um you're no longer the owner right and you know one of the reasons i eventually left i mean i left in fairly short order i left within about 18 months um was that you know where my passion is is in entrepreneurship it's in building businesses it's in that you know, first year, two, three years of a business where you could go from, you know, zero to a million to five million to 20 million. You know, I I just for me, that's where, you know, I get, um, you know, a lot of a lot of my passion. And now I've been able to do that since selling Pepper Jam. I've been I've built I founded uh, probably. Five or six multi-million-dollar businesses, um, and then I've invested in in some that are 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 significant, you know, in terms of, you know, size and scale and the impact that they're having, um, you know, in the industries that they're in.
1: Fantastic, Chris. Where do people get in touch with you? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know what? I am very social. Um, I have been on Twitter and Facebook since the beginning of both platforms. So on Twitter, I'm chrisjonescom with a K. Uh, on Facebook, my uh, my fan page, if you will, I think they call, still call it that, is KBJ Capital, which is the name of my my fund. Um, and uh, you know, DMing me on either of those platforms will uh, will get me. It'll go directly to me. So Chris Jones. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrillow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.